This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. We are very excited to partner with the Southern Utah Science Cafe out of Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Today's show is from the Science Cafe and is the second in a two-part series on fire. We jump back into the discussion on wildfire and fire retardants. Uh, my question's about the retardant. I've, I've always been curious how is that affect local ecology or wherever we're placing it. Uh, and then also how does it affect water systems if it does? Because um, I, I had no idea what retardant's made out of, so I've been curious about that. Well, I'll talk a little bit and then I'll let these guys talk about how it affects the environment. Um, so there, there is plans to how that stuff is put down. So. Um, we don't just arbitrarily say, I want a line here and I want a line there, and we don't care what's underneath that. So when we go, when we go into fight fires, uh, there's, there's a planning team that goes in to do this, and that includes um, folks that are in there to look after our, our natural resources. They're a big part of that input, and they're a big part of approving that plan. And part of that is, is if we put retardant down here, what is it going to affect? And most of the most of the time, that's going to be waterways. And because uh, I'll be honest with you, it's not retardant is not good for aquatic life. It's not good for fish, and it's not good for water. So, generally speaking, unless it was an extreme life-saving action um, of of people, then they're going to keep it out of the waterways. That's that's just a, that's a big no-no. That we don't we don't drop on on waterways. Um, so that's kind of where it, it, it lays. It does put that red stripe down for a long, long time. But as far as um, I know from what retardant is made out of, um, it is, it's, it's biodegradable, it will, it will soak in, but I'll let them talk about maybe the long-term effects. Yeah, and I, and I don't know much about the actual composition of fire uh, retardant. What um, I do know, in addition to the waterways, I think they are really cautious about using it in like designated wilderness areas as well. And so I know that there are, for sure, cer certain locations that they're very reluctant to use retardant um, if they're sensitive ecosystems. I know it sticks on you for a very long time, and it doesn't come out of clothes, and somehow it makes it down into your ears like way deep. I don't, I don't know how that happens. It just has a magnet. So yeah, I, all I know is if we got back to the station and we had retardant on our trucks, Chief would skin our hides. Yeah. We were in yeah. big trouble. Yeah. Also, this is the only other thing I know about retardant. If a VLAD accidentally does a drop on a hotshot crew, you will hear a chorus of colorful language extend for quite a few minutes. They don't like that very true so as a chemist I had to look up what fire retardant was um, and it's actually an ammonium phosphate uh, similar to fertilizer and apparently when it burns or when it chars in the fire it generates co2 and water and that basically removes oxygen uh, to a lot to basically stop the fire from burning so in my, my family works in wildland fire and we had um, a fire that came through our um, the sloughs in Moab and we were looking around in the aftermath probably a good three weeks later and I just saw a pile that was smoldering kicked it for fun and it sparked right back up and I was just wondering if you guys 
knew a little bit more about the science behind that and like the conditions that would cause that so much, so many days after when it had been declared out. So when, when you put a fire out, there's, there's a lot of steps, but one is to establish that perimeter. And once we get a perimeter established, we have the area called the black. Um, and the black will, will hold fire uh, in different stages, whether it's smoldering or actual flame, for a long time. I mean, there's, there's fires that'll be going almost all summer long with just stuff burning inside of the black. Um, and, and that's just something that you, when you have these larger fires, there's, just, there's no way to put water on everything that is on fire in there. So sometimes you just gotta watch it and, and let it go out. But having said that, there's also um, incidences where, uh, especially up in forested areas where you have a lot of roots that go deep and uh, roots that are um, rotten, maybe. They've had fires that have lasted through the winter that have burned through those root systems and then popped up the next, the next year when it got warm enough. And so, uh, I don't know really how to answer your question, but uh, fire's, fire's a survivor, uh, and as long as it will have uh, enough oxygen and enough fuel and enough uh, un uninterrupted reaction time, it'll, it'll burn for however long it has that. And sometimes that's just a matter of uh, being a coal um, to versus, versus being an open free burning flame. So um, yeah, they'll burn for a long time. I mean, that, that fire in 2020, um, there was hot spots out there for months and months afterwards. I think a lot of it can also depend on the, the vegetation type that's burning. Mm. You know, some, I think like oak is notorious for burning like really hot and really slow. And so, you know, I think that maybe initially it could be thought that it's out and then it might keep smoldering and sort of come back. Um, so I think that has quite a bit to do with, to do with it as well. You know, you mentioned that you, you kicked it, and that, that tells me right there that you know, you're below the surface where it's probably insulated and that heat is still being trapped. It's got the fuel. Um, if you just limit the oxygen a little bit, you know, you can slow the reaction, but it'll still go. I've, I've, I've been on a fire where there's been, they call it duff. I'm sure there's more scientific terms for it, but just an accumulation of pine needles where at the surf or surface, um, it was undisturbed. It didn't look like anything, but we started hacking down and within six or seven inches below the surface, it was burning. It was burning under, it burned underneath and was under burning and it was, yeah, could have popped up anywhere. So people have like famously started fires, but so many fires are natural. Is that different year by year? Is it trending one way or another? Are natural or artificial, not artificial, they're all real, but uh, are human caused fires worse? on average, or is there just no pattern whatsoever? It kind of depends year to year. Um, I know that um, in, in after the pandemic started, we had a lot more people um, out and about, and, and we were impacted pretty heavily in our end of the state. We attracted a lot of people that decided they were gonna sell or rent their house out and, and get an RV and go see the, the world. And, uh, and they ended up here for a good portion of that time. I mean, the comments I got were like, I can, I can work from my trailer as long as I got uh, Wi-Fi. They loaded up the kids, the kids can go to school. They weren't going into work, they were working from home, so they just decided to go see the world. And so that impacted how many people we had 
in our area. Uh, and we saw this in a lot of different ways. Search and rescue, we saw an uptick. Um, and I think that contributed some to our fires. Um, however, having that influx of people and the conditions that we had, we also put in fire restrictions uh, earlier and a little bit stronger. So it kind of reduced some of those fires that normally would have been caused by people just obeying the rules, maybe not putting out their campfire as good as they could have, but it eliminated the fires that were outside of un undeveloped camp areas and undeveloped places. And then further on, it was no fires at all. So um, it was kind of a, a double-edged thing. We kind of upped our ante on the enforcement of of where fires were at, but it also we had the influx of people. So uh, I think we saw a little bit of an increase with with that. Um, but other years, um, we'll see a drop. We'll see drop in both. I mean, there's some years we've been ready to fight fire and ready for a big season, and it just never came. Um, the the storms were just right. You know, they they had the lightning, but they also had uh, water with them. So. You know, we had a lot of single tree fires that didn't go anywhere. And, uh, and then other years that, you know, we got, we got hounded with dry lightning. So um, I, I don't know, I, I'd have to look into that pattern. Uh, you know, we get a report and to be honest with you, it's something I look at and we get it and then I kind of put it in the back of, the, back, back of my mind, but I'd like to look at that. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. Um, so the, the two large fires that burned uh, in the reserve in 2020. They were both human caused. One was started by teenagers playing with fireworks along the Cottonwood Springs Road. The other one was started along I-15 and kind of a fluke. It was started from a tire blowout. And so I guess maybe the rim lit a spark or something like that and off it went. It was really dry. Um, generally speaking, like in my world of like habitat management there is definitely a concern of just as we get more and more people in this community just statistically it's more and more likely that you're going to have more idiots out there playing with fireworks doing whatever you know flicking a cigarette butt out the window whatever it might be um and so i think there, there, there is a worry that maybe as we just we get more and more people in our community, we're gonna have, you know, just more likely to get larger fires. And then as we have more, um, you know, there's a concern with roads, allowing access into certain areas, potentially also um, could lead to additional fires just because humans are able to be there, whereas they maybe couldn't, you know, weren't able to be there uh, in the past so anyway all of those things i think play a role and i so yeah it'll it'll just be interesting to see how that trends in the future for sure so uh greg this might be a question for you um but if you go up towards uh uh past alston point and kind of up on the the kaiparowitz there's a great smoky road great smoky mountain road um, and then if you go up towards Hanksville, there's some other smoky mountain areas and they're basically burning coal seams. So can you explain what the coal seam is and why those lead to fires that have been going on for centuries? So yeah, so, so coal is, is an accumulation of, of plant material. 
okay? But it's in a specific environment. Um, think like um, like the Everglades, something, something swampy, something where um, there's an accumulation of water and the water is oxygen poor. And so what happens is all of this, this biomass ends up dying and accumulating and because of the, the anoxic or the low oxygen environment, it doesn't, it doesn't break down. And so you get this accumulation and then over geologic time, it's you know, compressed and heated and uh, eventually the carbon, the carbon uh, molecules in, in that plant life start converting into these really long chain hydrocarbon ligands and things like that. Um, and so you end up producing this, uh, that's how you get coal. Um, and then once that gets ignited, um, yeah, there is the potential for that sort of thing. I, I, I want to say some of them have been burning for decades, right? Yeah. 50, 60 years or something stupid. Um, again, it's the same thing I was talking about, access. Like, we just can't access that fire. There's no way to get to it. You know, fairly low oxygen, but you've got the fuel, and you've got, it's sandwiched between rocks, and so it stays nice and insulated, and it can just go. Luckily, it doesn't hurt too many people, but, you know. So I read an article recently that after the Turkey Farm Road fire, there was an active effort to reseed the area and try to um, restore it. And I'm just kind of wondering what determines what areas are going to see that sort of active restoration, whereas other areas they would just kind of let return to normal over time. Like how do you decide which ones you actively restore versus which ones you just kind of let go? Um, so I can speak a little bit about that. Um, I don't know everything that went into the decision of like, okay, these are the areas we're going to seed. These are the areas we're going to let come back naturally. That was an effort led by the, the DWR, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, those uh, aerial seeding efforts. I can say that, you know, certain vegetation communities that we're seeing out there are, are naturally coming back a lot better on their own compared to others. And so it may well be the case that they're seeding the areas that don't appear to be coming back as well. Um, one example, like there's an area that burned through like a bunch of sand sagebrush and different types of bunch grasses. And that stuff actually has already come back pretty well in like really sandy soils. Um, and so some of those, yeah, some of those native species are just coming back really well. Other stuff like creosote bush tends not to come back as well. And so it is very possible that they're focused more on those locations, but I, I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, I know that, you know, most of those efforts that you were reading about, I believe were being done on state lands. Um, and then I think the BLM has another strategy for how they're planning on doing some restoration as well. Um, but yeah, that, that seems to make the, that mean, that seems to be the most logical approach for me, but I just don't know for certain um, how they're doing it. And, and we'd be lying if we didn't say there was some politics involved. So when you're talking about BLM versus county versus forest service, you know, or even BIA, or even BIA, you know, they all have their agenda, and and not faulting them for them, but you know, that's 
they get their different fundings from different sources and, and so they some have the ability to do that and some people don't. Um, one of the things uh, that we do look at too when reseeding uh, on a limited scope is the landslide um, threat to different areas. If we can get the vegetation back on those, land, on those, those hillsides and stuff, we can reduce that landslide uh, potential. Um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a crapshoot just because, you know, you're going to put seed down on there and you don't know if the spring is going to come and, and send you a lot of uh, water or a lot of runoff and then you've washed down all your seeding. But, you know, you kind of just hope and you try to plan. But Yeah, and uh, another thing that, that I just thought of, I know some of the restoration efforts going on out there are kind of strategic in areas that water is more likely to accumulate like at the base of like a, a slope or along a wash areas that are just more likely to get water and hopefully come back on their own as opposed to just totally exposed out in the open dry areas and then the the you know the idea is that hopefully in time if you can establish these little islands of vegetation maybe over the course of many many decades the seeds that those plants are, um, produce can be dispersed and start, you know, um, seeding on their own. And so um, a lot of these efforts that are going on right now have started with like strategic, okay, we're going to do this because we feel like this area has the best chance of propagation. And then, um, which is, which is a, a good approach, especially when you can't do things on like a huge landscape level. So... That's another um, approach that's being used. Um, you answered my question a little bit with your last answer, but what efforts are being taken to prevent that erosion to runoff that do put communities at risk for landslides? Um, just what techniques are being used to prevent landslides specifically to protect communities post-fire? So there are a number of mitigation techniques. Revegetation has got to be one of the biggest and the most effective um, for, for pretty obvious reasons. But um, uh, as far as I know, post-fire, that's kind of it. And then identifying those regions that are of greatest risk and then letting the public know that. So just uh, getting that word out. I don't could you guys think of... Uh, naturally, I mean, we'll look at um, areas that... And and the problem is, is that a lot of times when we start addressing that problem is when we actually know about that problem. Um, so, so when we have these, these floods that come down, we don't know what's going to landslide and what's not. Um, so sometimes it's, it's a reaction. And, but we try, to, we try to look at that, and if, if we suspect something like that's going to happen, um, really the protection that we have is, is at the bottom. So either to, to divert the flow, um, down to the right spots or divert the flow at the very bottom with stuff like riprap and um, those kind of things but a lot of times it's you don't know it's going to be a problem until it's a problem it's just it's really hard to tell i think we're going to wrap it up i want to thank you all for joining us to learn more or listen to other science moab episodes visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. 
newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.